0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And racism is real. Its devastating historical effects can still be felt today, and the misguided and harmful beliefs we've inherited from previous generations can have a profound impact on how we see and treat each other. The anti-racist movement is a response to these injustices and anti-racism training has sprung up across private and public businesses over the last several years. But is there only one prescribed way to do anti-racism training or to be anti-racist? Our guest this week has spent the last several years developing an enchanting alternative. After spending a year as a Bartley Fellow at the Wall Street Journal, Chloe Valdery developed the Theory of Enchantment, an innovative framework for compassionate anti-racism that combines social-emotional learning, character development, and interpersonal growth as tools for leadership development in the boardroom and beyond. Chloe, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thank you for inviting me on.
0: Of course. Now, in a recent official video, your program, Theory of Enchantment, is described as, quote, an anti-racism course rooted in developmental psychology that seeks to uncover the immense complexity and potential within each of us, end quote. But before we really dive into the Theory of Enchantment, what it is, and how you came to develop it, let's talk a bit about how you got to this point. Now, you've taught around the world, you've been to multiple countries with your program, but first, I want to start at a young age. You were 11 years old when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, where you were raised. And while your parents' house wasn't destroyed, you were displaced and lived in Alexandria, Louisiana for a year. How did this experience, this sudden and chaotic disruption in your adolescence, affect you?
1: I'm not sure that it deeply or profoundly affected me. I have to say I don't really remember every aspect of that experience, it affected me in the sense that, you know, I had to spend a year away from the regular institutional schooling that I was receiving in New Orleans. I had to go to a different school in a more rural town, which, you know, entails getting new friends and learning the lay of the land. And I remember the school that I attended actually did not allow you to have backpacks. So you could only have a binder, a massive binder that would contain all of your you know, schoolwork. So that was very new for me. I had never experienced that before. But in terms of like any profound or moving implication in my life, I can't say that it really impacted me in a way, at least not consciously that I'm aware of.
0: Understood. Yeah, the main reason that I had asked was because the more I get to know my friends and family and hear about their childhood experiences, right? Like, let's take my own mom and dad. My mom came from a broken home. Her parents divorced when she was young. She moved to a new state as a result, and it kind of created a lot of upheaval that ultimately affected how she viewed marriage and her commitment to the relationship with my father. My own dad moved around probably once every couple of years as a kid in a working class family in Central California, and that had a profound impact on what jobs he did or didn't take as an adult because he was worried that... He would kind of uproot me, and it would affect how I made friendships as a child. And so I've always been fascinated with how sort of the events of the past kind of cascade into the future and affect the decisions we make as adults. So if it wasn't, let's say, Hurricane Katrina that had that effect on you, and that's totally understandable, everyone's different, were there events in your childhood that kind of formed the person you are today in a deep way?
1: Certainly, I grew up in a very non-mainstream Christian home. I grew up as a Christian observing non-Christian festivals. So I did not grow up observing Christmas or Easter. I grew up observing things like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are central to Judaism. And this experience basically put me into a paradoxical situation, or rather gave me the paradigm with which I move throughout the world now, rooted in paradox. And it was rooted in paradox because how I grew up was both orthodox and rebellious at the same time, both steeped in orthodoxy and yet was rooted in the kind of curiosity that I had a willingness to question norms. And so there's a tension between those two things. There's a dance between those two things. And that certainly has colored how I see the world. I also should add that the tradition in my family on Christmas Day, for example, was not having a Christmas tree or opening up presents. It was to sit in the living room and discuss the historical events that actually led to the establishment of Christmas. So we would read documents about Emperor Constantine. um, And as a result, from a very early age, there was always an understanding of the past as present. The past was always present. History was always present. I was made aware of the fact that Myself in New Orleans was not the only thing that existed. The events that had happened in the past from ancient civilizations still had relevance to the present day. And as a result, I feel like I grew to take seriously history and try to incorporate an understanding of history into how I understood the present. That was a huge influence and continues to be a huge influence on you know how i live and how i perceive events as they are unfolding today
0: Yeah. I grew up Christian myself, but my experience was, for lack of a better word, was, I guess you could say, a quote-unquote more mainstream Christian experience. I understand that what kind of, as you said it, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but yours was a more specific offshoot of Christianity that was more deeply rooted and intertwined with the Jewish faith itself. And I don't want to get ahead of us here, but it seems like that played a rather fundamental role in seeing interconnectedness that you had with other communities. Because most religions, let's say, when they think about themselves, they really think about their own books and their own place in some relation to other religions, but not necessarily a part of them. Even most Christians, including myself, I'm agnostic now, but even as a Christian, I understood there was a a very firm dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And while I saw the Jewish people as part of the tradition that Christianity was built upon, I didn't really have that same connection to it that you clearly did growing up. And so it sounds to me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that that interconnectedness, that cross-community interconnectedness. I know you did some activism in college on behalf of Israel. I read some articles about your activism there and how it influenced your views on racial activism as well. But I'd love for you to speak a little more about how that kind of interconnectedness across faiths influenced both the theory of enchantment and how you view community.
1: Yes, that's a great question. I'd say I was conditioned to compare and contrast. I was conditioned to see patterns across different cultures. The conditioning actually came out of what I now consider to be a pretty dogmatic and parochial exercise, which was to demonstrate, quote-unquote, purity of the way we worshipped and of the way we pursued Christianity versus the way others did. So, for example, we would, on Christmas, study how things like the festival of the Saturnalia in ancient Rome And the Roman god Mithra, who was the sun god, whose birthday was on December 25th, became, via syncretic process that the Roman Catholic Church uses, became Christmas, became superimposed as the birth of Christ. But what I began to realize later in life is that what was essentially happening across cultures was fundamentally beautiful and and shouldn't necessarily be seen as a you know quote unquote impure or pagan rendering. And what I mean by that is I discovered that in the same way that the ancient Romans looked for light in the darkest of days, which is what the festival of the Saturnalia was really all about. This is why it was on December 25th, because it was during the winter solstice and it was it was because there was darkness all around. And they decided to honor the fact which is I think is universal to the human experience, actually, or the process of looking for light in the darkest of days, and so if you were to sift out the meaning of Christmas or sift out the meaning of the Saturnalia, that is essentially, in my opinion, the meaning. like I said, I think there's something beautiful about that, but this led to just the ability to see how different themes are universally repeated across multiple different stories and narratives from multiple different cultures and that have arisen in different times even, which is remarkable because it really teaches you and teaches us about both the particularities of the human experience and the universalism of the human experience. And how that's affected the creation of theory of enchantment, or how that's influenced it rather, I think can be seen in the fact that we use the arts and we use narratives as a platform to teach people process of self-refinement, a process of self-discovery. In the same way, you know, that Joseph Campbell wrote, "Hero with a thousand faces and really demonstrated and revealed a lot of what I'm talking about. I think what I'm trying to do is very similar, but it's primarily in an American context. It's primarily viewing and excavating our pop culture artifacts for the central themes that are repeated throughout them that tell the story of a a nation, um, but also They can show individual human beings different values and different principles that we can apply in our lives that will actually help us overcome certain tragedies and inevitable events that arise in life and that are just part of the human condition.
0: Yeah, that's really wonderfully said. I think a focus on kind of the universal aspects of humanity that bind us together is more needed now than ever. So let's just jump into theory of enchantment and and how you kind of came to create it. You graduated from the University of New Orleans with a BA in international studies, said in, in a recent TED talk from last year that you've always been interested in, quote, teaching people how to combat conflict, end quote, But while serving as a Bartley Fellow with the Wall Street Journal, you realized you wanted to teach people how to love, which, as you note in that same talk, they're related topics, but not the same. But I guess for the folks listening to us right now, they love people, right? They love family members, friends, husbands, wives, children, neighbors. So when you say love in this instance, what do you mean and how has it gone missing?
1: Yes, I'd say when I say love, I'm speaking really of this Greek concept, agape love, which is talked about and discussed in multiple different contexts, most famously in both the New Testament and by Dr. King. Dr. King emphasized this kind of love and the importance of striving for this kind of love in a lot of his sermons. It was what his political philosophy was centered in. And agape love is essentially love for one's fellow human beings, simply because One fellow human being was made in the image of the divine. And so all human beings are sacred and are deserving of unconditional love in that sense. And so that's what I mean by by love. So it's not brotherly love. It's not romantic love. It's this very specific kind of love that's rooted in an acknowledgement and a recognition of your neighbor as sacred and containing the image of the divine.
0: Yeah. As a follow-up question to that, Martin Luther King Jr.'s work was obviously deeply rooted in his Christian faith. And this was a topic that I talked at least a little bit about with a past guest, a woman by the name of Alexandra Hudson, who tried to delineate the difference between being civil and being polite, civil being important in practicing what Martin Luther King did. And politeness can be a veneer to sort of hide rather uncivil behavior like oppression and segregation. But one thing that she and I kind of talked about in that in that episode, and I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, because Martin Luther King's work is so deeply rooted in the theory of enchantment, how do we practice agape for one another when the United States, for instance, is less religious than ever? This is something that I've kind of been grappling with myself. I'm agnostic now, but I grew up Christian. And although I'm still agnostic and probably will be for the near future, as I've seen the events unfold over the last several years. It feels like people are yearning or grasping for a kind of religion that they've lost, and they're trying to replace it with something. So I guess my larger question here is, how do we have or practice love for one's fellow human being as made in the image of the divine, if so many people these days don't really believe in a divine?
1: I mean, that's a very tricky question. I'm not sure I have a Satisfying answer for that. You know, there's a saying that you can either grow out of religion or grow your religion. And I feel like my sensibility rests in the latter statement or the latter portion of that statement. And so I'm a deeply spiritual person. And I sense that despite the fact that we are no longer institutionally religious, given the decrease in attendance of these religious institutions that has taken place over time. Precisely what you just said, the fact that we are yearning for something might suggest that we actually do believe in the divine, or certainly that we want to believe in the divine. And so I would probably question the certainty of the premise of the question, which is to say that I'm not actually sure that human beings in this nation in particular no longer believe in the divine. I think it's more that we have become perturbed and disappointed in the institutions that claimed to give expression to the divine. And I think that there is a distinction between those two, between those two things. But in general, it's tricky if you're agnostic or if you're an atheist to have the language that I'm using resonate with you because, you know, it's just a different paradigm but it's a reflection of how I grew up. It's a reflection of my lived experiences. But I do admit that it can be tricky for someone who doesn't have that same framework of reference when they think about the world and how they relate to other human beings.
0: That's a great response. And it kind of helps me refine my question, because I think what you've said is well said. And I know that this kind of may seem to our audience or to you a little orthogonal to the main topic was which, which is theory of enchantment but to me it feels so related i guess what you're saying is absolutely true right you don't need to necessarily believe in any kind of exact religion to believe in something beyond or to believe in the divine right i guess i've been thinking a lot about both the church and the military in terms of the united states and i think what by that what i mean is I was walking in the before times. This was so, this was about a year and a half ago. I was walking down Burbank and I came across a a Catholic church. Right now, I didn't grow up Catholic, I grew up Protestant, but church was just letting out. I mean, it was probably, and I live in Los Angeles, so it's already a very diverse place, but I. But this was a different kind of diversity in that oftentimes when we speak of diversity, we think of a lot of people of different ethnicities and races and and religious beliefs, all kind of coexisting, but oftentimes they can be segregated in their own communities for sometimes understandable or even historical and malevolent reasons. But as the church was letting out. I saw basically every single type of person. I saw Filipino Catholics, Italian Catholics, incredibly Irish-looking Catholics, Latino Catholics, Black Catholics, White Catholics, any kind of Catholic you can think of, they were there. And more importantly, they were all interacting and talking with each other because I understood from my own religious background, but they saw in each other a brother or sister in Christ. And so similarly to the military, right? The, the one of the most diverse places in the United States is the is the United States military and that diversity is able to work and function because they share a common purpose and a common goal now the military and the religion <laughs> religion are very different things but i guess what i'm trying to get at and perhaps inarticulately is how do we find a common cause or a common binding glue i guess you could say in the absence of an organized religion or in the absence of a war i guess you could say does does that make more sense
1: yes and the one of the challenges of this is the fact that we live in a very a materially abundant society and that paradoxically can actually lead to i think although material security, spiritual insecurity. I'm reading a lot about this right now in the book called The True and Only Heaven by Christopher Lash, where he talks about the erosion of the belief in a set of values or a set of organizing principles that is less about material accumulation of wealth and more about character development, more about virtue. And he talks about how in a society... That primarily values consumption, which is what our society essentially sets up as the primary goal in life, you will have a deterioration of even the the unifying belief that you know working on moral character or the pursuit of virtue as a goal to aspire towards, so I think that's one of the challenges here. I'm probably not going to be able to answer answer your question I'm just going to list the challenges to <laughs>
0: That's okay. <laughs> it's a it's a big one. It's more yeah. just been on my mind and I, I just I just wanted your take. I, I know you can't solve the world's problems in a podcast.
1: But I but I do think and this is why pop culture is so important to me, because pop culture is essentially a mirror. It shows us what we gravitate towards. It shows us what we have quasi religious like devotion towards. Um, and this was, you know, the process by which I created theory of enchantment was by studying pop culture and and seeing because pop culture shows us what we love. And I thought to myself, you know, well, maybe if I figure out what we're already in love with, then I can use that to teach people how to love. And there are common themes in certain pop culture artifacts, you could say, that suggest a belief in principles that have traditionally been associated with religion in the institutional sense of the word. And so I'm not sure that the culture has become so desiccated that we couldn't resurrect so to speak a unifying framework and a vision for society in which people believe in the divine however you know loosely defined but believe that human beings were made in the image of the divine and are thus sacred and believe in a transcendent sort of reality that unites us all and that unites us beyond our differences. And by the way, this is the only reality, in so far as I can tell, that can actually defeat things like racism, because otherwise, if there's no transcendent unifying framework, or principle, or belief that you think, you know, makes all of us as human beings equal, equal in the eyes of the divine, then I don't see how you can actually put together a coherent political philosophy that would successfully defeat racism.
0: Yeah, I think that's correct. I guess this comes down to the old conflict of how can we stop wrestling with one another in the mud if we don't look towards the sky, I suppose. But the theory of enchantment, and you've spoken a bit about it here, but it wasn't, it wasn't always, at least not explicitly, and correct me if I'm wrong here, an anti-racism course. On a podcast early in 2020, you described it as a course to quote, teach mental health and identity formation. And in that same TED talk, you said the theory of enchantment is a social emotional learning program that teaches individuals how to develop character, develop tools for resiliency, to meet the hardship of life head on, but more importantly, to learn how to love oneself, that kind of agape love you were talking about, so that one can be able to love others in the process, end quote. So How did the theory of enchantment originally come to be? I I know that uh, there was some development of it while you were at the Wall Street Journal. And in what ways has it changed since its inception?
1: Yeah, so I developed a thesis for it at the Wall Street Journal and discovered that all these pop culture brands that I mentioned earlier, including brands like Disney and Nike and Beyonce, were creating content where audiences saw themselves and their potential reflected in the content. And when I say we saw ourselves. I mean, we saw our full flawed, imperfect uh, selves. And I think that that's important to reiterate because in our society today, there's a lot of, I think caricaturing is in vogue. And so it's important to, for me to emphasize that, but that was what was happening with all of these brands. Um, And I found that entire phenomenon enchanting, which is why I called it the theory of enchantment. And after I developed this thesis. I toured really around college campuses in America, in South Africa, and in um, Europe, specifically still on the topic of international studies, actually. But I lectured on this new idea called the theory of enchantment. And by that time, I had developed three principles for the theory of enchantment. And the three principles are treat people like human beings, not political abstractions. Again, with the understanding that human beings means complex and imperfect and flawed and gifted all at the same time. Number two, if you have to criticize, criticize to uplift and empower, never to tear down, never to destroy. And number three, try to root everything you do in love and compassion. And so I lectured on this for two years and eventually people were like you know this isn't just relevant in the world of international studies international conflict geopolitics it's relevant in the world of interpersonal relationships it's relevant to social emotional learning and growth in high schools etc so you might want to consider going off on your own and and doing us creating a startup essentially so enough people said that to me and that's what i did and i created a startup called Theory of Enchantment, and I took what was then essentially a 45-minute speech and turned it into a full course, a full 25-lesson course on this idea of self-refinement, self-love, being a catalyst for being able to love others, and built this course heavily around the use of using pop culture to teach it. So, for example, when we teach the complexity of the self, we use Kendrick Lamar's song DNA, especially when he says, I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA. And we talk about how what he's doing as an artist is showing you his complexity, and he's acknowledging his own capacity to do good and to do evil. Um, And it's critical to, to recognize that, for people to, for human beings to recognize that. We have both the shadow and the light within ourselves. And so we use pop culture heavily to teach these Ideas and of course there are exercises and practices that people can then do to to practice really and to to become more aware of their themselves the the beauty of themselves and all of their complexity. So I did that and really started to focus on trying to get social emotional learning program into high schools because typically speaking insofar as what I've seen there's a lot of emphasis on social emotional learning for elementary school kids. But there wasn't a lot of focus on bringing that kind of work or curriculum to high school students. So initially, I actually tried to, I had like the course that was online for any individual who wanted to enroll 14 years old and up. But I also wanted to sort of develop a B2B segment of the business and bring it to high schools. And what I discovered was that the high schools are nearly impossible to sell to. There's bureaucratic red tape. It's one of the most... Really, I'd say difficult systems to work within and to work through that I've encountered. And I was trying to sell to high schools until really COVID hit, actually. And then COVID hit in March of last year and everything started to sort of slow down. And I had a feeling that because COVID hit, there was going to be some like weird inflection point around theory of enchantment. And the reason why I felt this way was because theory of enchantment is. Set up fundamentally because of what it covers to help people deal with cognitive dissonance and to help people deal with chaos, essentially. It helps people bring order and meaning into chaos. And this is especially because of our use of the arts as a platform to teach this. And because we demonstrate that artists like Kendrick Lamar and Jay Z are, this is what they're actually doing in their work. They're confronting the chaos of life and bringing meaning and order to it. So when COVID hit, I had a feeling that something was going to happen. And then when George Floyd was murdered and protests started, you know, happening around the country, all of a sudden you saw businesses having an, an increased demand for anti-racism training, for diversity and inclusion training. And the thing about Theory of Enchantment is that built into this program is the mechanism with which one can combat racism. We include writers and thinkers like James Baldwin, and we included these individuals from the the beginning, James Baldwin, Maya Angelou, Dr. King. We have individuals wrestle with the texts because these individuals were not just writing about race and racism, they were writing about fighting racism, racism with an understanding rooted in the human condition in the transcendent experience of the human condition. And so we believe that by consuming these texts, by being challenged by these texts, that people can actually develop character along with all the other exercises and actually be equipped with the tools to fight racism. So this was already built into the program. And you know after really banging my head on the wall, trying to sell to high schools and not really getting very far, I decided to pivot, essentially. Now, I should go back in a few steps and say that in 2019, I did get the opportunity that I'm really grateful for. I got my first client, actually, which was outside of the public school system. It was the Civil Rights Department of the... I think it's the FAA, which I think stands for Federal Aviation Authority. So they brought me in, and I did an eight-hour training with them of this program. And it was specifically for their diversity and inclusion training. So I'd already had a, a little experience serving a client that had asked for this specifically. But it wasn't until 2020 that I fully pivoted and started to position this program as an anti-racism program and target instead of high schools per se, businesses in general. That's a description of the organic changes within how I've marketed theory of enchantment. And of course, you know, it's completely unpredictable because who could have predicted COVID? Who could have predicted all these other things that happen after COVID? It's really a fascinating thing, the entrepreneurial experience, because there's so many unpredictable factors that arise and you just have to learn how to pivot and play and be spontaneous and respond to it. And I think that there's actually an ethic in that a bit of capacity to do that. Like that is the artistic on some level ethic. Albert Murray, one of my favorite authors who is an African-American jazz musician and writer and critic once talked about this impromptu, what he called impromptu heroism culture within the African-American community, which was this, which entailed this capacity to play, especially as expressed musically. He famously described the blues as A musical idiom with which one, you know, he said one would sing the blues and by singing the blues, get rid of the blues as such. And so, this ability to respond to tragedy, this ability to respond to hardship in such a way that actually transforms it, is something that I think is important, even in something seemingly unrelated like entrepreneurial life. Um, So, anyway, that's a long story to say how everything sort of morphed and transformed between, you know, how I started and and where I am today.
0: Yeah. A couple of things there right at the top. If anyone listening to this has not read The Omni-Americans by Albert Murray, highly recommend. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Great book. But secondly, coming from the entertainment industry myself, there was a, a phrase or idiom, I guess you could call it, that I would hear over and over again from film school onward, which is that, success in any field really it was specifically in this in this case it was entertainment but i think it can be applied anywhere Is really a combination of three things two of which are kind of beyond your control but the one thing that is within your control is kind of the most important piece the first two are kind of luck and or chaos sort of the things that come at you that you can't really control and you can only react to those things can then present opportunity And those are the two things that are kind of beyond your control in some ways. But the thing that is within your control is how prepared you are for when those things happen. And it sounds to me in recalling your experience with Theory of Enchantment and how you prepared it initially for one field and then for the field of education, sounds like you kind of hit a wall there. But ultimately, all of that preparation led you to a point when something that was completely beyond your control, how could any of us have predicted what was going to happen in 2020? You were perfectly situated to adapt to that.
1: Yeah, it's really trippy, actually. (laughs) It's very trippy.
0: So before we get to kind of comparing and contrasting the anti-racism approach of theory of enchantment with other approaches, I want to throw a couple quotes your way from one of the thinkers that I think heavily influences the theory of enchantment's coursework, which is James Baldwin, because there were a couple quotes of his that kind of immediately jumped out to me. And I wanted to just open-endedly hear your thoughts on them, how they relate to you, and how they might relate to the Course, if that's all right. Sure. So the first quote from him is, quote, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read, it was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive who had ever been alive, end quote.
1: Yeah, that's certainly one of his more famous sayings. I think it speaks to what I spoke about earlier, which is this idea that out of the particular comes the universal. And I think we're actually losing in our society today an awareness of that, of the fact that the pain that one person may experience you know, in a particular context can be felt by another person who looks completely different from that person in a completely different context we're losing our capacity to see ourselves reflected in each other. And that's a really dangerous place to be in. There's a quote by Kendrick Lamar where he says, a fatal attraction is common, and what we have common is pain. And I went to one of the Black Lives Matter protests in Brooklyn last year with a poster board that had that on it. And so I was sort of like, you know, with the protesters and there were police on the other side of the of the street and that is the message that i wanted to, to try to inject into the protest at that moment and I, I think it's very reminiscent and echoes baldwin's saying that you just read
0: yeah there seems to be kind of a tension that is happening within the anti-racism movement and it's an understandable one but there seems to be one that kind of is echoing what you just said and what Baldwin has said as well, which is the idea that we all have a universal, common experience. Obviously, different ethnicities, different racial groups, men, women, et cetera, we all do experience the world in different ways. Intersectionality, as originally conceived, is, of course, true, at least in in my opinion. We can't control how society necessarily sees us, but what we do have in common is the fact that we all experience pain. We all experience loss those things that cause that pain and loss might be different things depending on where we were raised or who we are, but those emotions are very common. But the other thing that seems to be going in the other direction, which seems to be almost arguing against a kind of universal humanity are phrases like, and I'm not sure how you feel about these particular phrases, are phrases like black love, black thought, white women, white womening, white splaining. And I know these are different things, right? And I know that there is a there's an understandable historical tension when it comes to thing, when it comes to phrases like black love or black thought etc. I understand that there's a kind of reclamation there which I don't want to ignore but there's a part of me that also worries that there's a kind of flattening that happens there or a kind of siloing. I guess I don't have a a, I'm kind of speaking off the cuff here, but I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts about this kind of tension that seems to be existing. And you can even see it on the signs in some of these protests. There will be signs that call for a universalism and signs that while well-meaning seem to create more silos. Is that something you've noticed?
1: Yes. Well, part of the reason why the protests I don't think will work is because there's no coherent moral philosophy that the protests are actually rooted in. But I also, when you were when you were saying those phrases, I thought about something I read earlier last year that Carl Jung warned against, which is this idea of attachment to the archetype. And what that essentially means is, if we were to go back into the topic of like this idea of Joseph Campbell and the hero with a thousand faces, there are different archetypes throughout stories that we are probably familiar with because they've been repeated throughout human history for all time. So, for example, the archetype of the benevolent mother, divine feminine, or divine masculine, benevolent father, the archetype of the hero, right? These are all like essentially symbols that are recognizable in things like Disney movies, but also ancient stories that we've told each other for a very long time. And in one of his essays, Carl Jung talks about the importance of not being attached to the image and not confusing the image for the values that the image represents. Because obviously the danger of becoming attached to the image itself is turning the image essentially into an idol and confusing, again, the substance that the image represents with the image itself. And it dawns on me that I think that that's what's happening right now with regard to what you just said. I think that people are becoming transfixed and obsessed with the image, whether it's the black person or the white as opposed to the principles or the substance or the ideas that said person or said people have represented or have transmitted. So I think that that's what's happening. I mean, what's funny is that James Baldwin in a two hour conversation with Nikki Giovanni and everyone should watch this cause it's on YouTube. If I remember correctly. He said that he was very, this was in the seventies. He was very happy with the, my black is beautiful movement because one had to a Black person had to first recognize of their own accord and of their own volition that they were beautiful. So he said that he was very proud of this movement, happy with this movement, and that yet that he hoped that eventually that the movement would end also <laughs> because of, the, again, this idea of being transfixed and caught up in the image as opposed to the substance behind the image. And I think that that's actually what's been happening for a long time now, not just last year. I think that people in their conversations about how to combat racism have engaged inadvertently in a kind of fetishizing, turning certain images of certain people or certain people really into a fetish, which is really, among other things, not only just fundamentally immoral, but also a missed opportunity.
0: I wonder how much of it is... We can only speak with the language we have. And so in a way, I mean, what is that famous? I think it's Audrey Lord, right? You cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Am I, I think, I think I'm okay. I want to make sure I'm, I'm getting that right. But there is a, a word from Brazil. It's a Portuguese word. I'm probably going to butcher it. So I apologize for my pronunciation to any Portuguese listeners out there. Sadaje, it's S-A-U-D-A-D-E. So apologies for my butchering but this word doesn't exist in English and what it means is a longing for something that is gone and the sadness that comes with knowing you can never get it back right so the reason i bring up this word it's not really related to the topic at hand but what it means is is that there's a way to communicate a feeling and an emotion that is fundamentally human that exists in another language but does not exist in mine and so i wonder if in our conversations around race and identity and belonging and what it means to be black and what it means to be white, even as we try to expand what those things mean, we are in some ways still trying to expand the gates that were put around us by white supremacists like 400 years ago. And so as we try to expand them, it seems like we become more constricted.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that people are just becoming far more, like I said earlier, transfixed by images. And especially now that we live in a social media world where there's also this very like dangerous side effect of social media. I'm actually taking a break from Twitter right now. And I deactivated my Facebook because I recognize that social media has this weird mirror effect by which people become incentivized to simply seek external validation. And the constant seeking of external validation is actually a trait of narcissistic personality disorder. And so I wonder the extent to which these platforms are actually inducing antisocial behavioral patterns within our species. So I don't know, there's like a whole host of things that need to be decoupled and I think unpacked in order for us to get to the heart of the issue.
0: Yeah, that is incredibly true. I remember I deleted Facebook a few years ago because I found myself getting in these loops of, like, I could never be present. I would be at a concert or be at a restaurant and like, oh my gosh, like this meal is so, it looks so amazing. And in rather, and I this is embarrassing to say, but I feel like in order to normalize it, I must confess it, <laughs> I would be sitting across the table with someone I cared about. And instead of enjoying the moment and enjoying the meal, I would first take a photo and post it to Instagram, right? (laughs) But for who, right? Like those people weren't with me. But anyway, that's tangential. But I 100% agree with you. And I'm not sure how we can exactly unwind that clock. But back to theory of enchantment. This is the problem, Chloe, with talking with someone really interesting. (laughs) It it creates a lot of garden paths. So
1: It's okay. It's all interrelated.
0: (laughs) Yes. So back to theory of enchantment. I want to compare and contrast it with kind of current And existing anti-racism programs and more the idea of what anti-racism means in general. So you've said in Theory of Enchantment that there are problems with anti-racism programs that are currently being implemented in schools and companies across the United States. But I guess first I want to know if your definition of anti-racism differs at all from that of Ibram X. Kendi's. And I'm just going to read his here for any listeners who might not be familiar at least with his definition in his own words. And it is, quote, to be anti-racist is to think nothing is behaviorally wrong or right, inferior or superior with any of the racial groups. Whenever the anti-racist sees individuals behaving positively or negatively, the anti-racist sees exactly that. Individuals behaving positively or negatively, not representatives of whole races. To be anti-racist is to deracialize behavior to remove the tattooed stereotype from every racialized body behavior is something humans do not races do end quote now i know that in some circles kendy is a kind of controversial figure quote unquote and i certainly <laughs> i personally don't agree with his anti-racist amendment idea but this definition of what anti-racism is seems at least on its face pretty uncontroversial even anodyne you would say do you agree with this definition of anti-racism as kendy describes it and if so Why and where do you think these anti-racism programs are going awry?
1: Yes, I definitely agree with that definition of anti-racism. The problem is that Kendi later contradicts himself in in the book and actually engages in the very self-same behavior that he condemns in the name of anti-racism. So the problem is that the book is incoherent in that it is inconsistent. um, And that incoherence creates a situation in which the exact opposite behavior is actually taken in diversity and inclusion training programs who cite Ibram Kendi, and they might not cite that passage, but they do cite the passage where he talks about the quote-unquote difference between Black consciousness and white consciousness. The very use of such language, again, is the complete antithesis of the statement that you just read. And so in a lot of these training programs, white people specifically are asked to Confess. Ibram Kindi also says that confession is the heartbeat of anti racism. And by confession, he means that if you're a white person, that by definition you are racist. So white people are asked to confess their sins and seek penitence, essentially. Ibram Kindi also says that anti racism, you can tell that something is anti racist if it is resulting in equity for people of color and generally speaking, People who have been disenfranchised because of racism. Now, the problem with that definition, among other things, is that by equity he means the material accumulation of capital. And this is very ironic because Ibram Kendi claims later on in his book that capitalism is racist, and that racism is capitalist. Again, this is another example of the incoherent inconsistencies within the book, because what he calls for as essentially a solution or restitution for the problem historically of racism is a fundamentally capitalist solution. It's not, for example, a call to increase wages, right? It's not a call to increase wages for the middle class. It's not a call to decrease income inequality. It's actually a call to make more people who are part of the quote-unquote 1%, which is constantly, it's not a, you know, it's it's a constantly shifting thing. It's a dynamic thing. It's not a static thing. But the call is to actually make more people who are part of the 1% be people of color. That's essentially what he's calling for when he calls for equity. And when he says that anything that is anti-racist, you can tell it's anti-racist because it's resulting in a decrease in material disparity for people of color. And that is not, you know, I've I've pointed out already the inconsistencies in, in some of his definitions, but that creates a training where, I mean, some of the, some horrendous things have been happening in schools and in businesses. I mean, I've heard cases where and Christopher Rufo has done a lot of work uncovering some of this if anyone's interested. But there are schools that are now being sued because Mixed-race children were essentially told to basically apologize for being white, for being half-white or what have you. You have schools being sued because they're essentially engaging in the very self-same thing that Ibram Kendi does in his book when he talks about ideas like black consciousness and white consciousness, as if there is such a thing. I mean, the idea of that is incredibly, incredibly sinister, and eerie, and should be avoided at all costs. But that's the kind of ideas that are being perpetrated right now. And these are being perpetrated by diversity and inclusion consultants who come speaking in the name of Ibram Kendi, who come promoting Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, who come pulling quotes from Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, to support their training. And that is just one example of the nature of the problem, because As I'm sure you know, Irwin Kendi has been highly promoted throughout our cultural institutions all of last year. He was named as one of the most 100 influential people in Time Magazine. You know, he's been promoted on late night shows and and the like. So it's very, very dangerous for people to refrain from actually processing his ideas and understanding where his ideas would go when taken to that logical conclusion.
0: It reminds me, a lot of the struggles that I had with religion as I was losing my faith, right? And this isn't any kind of, I don't mean this is any kind of commentary on anyone else who gets value from religion. I went through my angry atheist phase in my 20s. I'm, I'm well beyond that. I, I understand that it has function for people. But what I want to point to is, when i was going through my own struggles with it and i would go to other people of faith or pastors and i would say hey like i'm struggling with this you know this passage right here or this or this conundrum or this contradiction and they would point me to a passage let's say in the new testament where they would say well god you know xyz so it's okay but then i would say well there's another passage that says the exact opposite so if god wrote both then what is true. But I think what happens with the frustration around, let's say, Kendi's teachings in his book, for instance, and I see a lot of this happening online, even in direct conversations with Kendi, not that I've had, but that I've witnessed on Twitter, is he'll quote himself or someone will quote him and be like, well, look, that this is all that anti-racism means. But then someone else will quote another passage from his book, and that won't be addressed. And so it seems like it's written in a way, and I don't like ascribing Motives, if I can't prove it. And I don't think that he's a bad person. But I think what it does lead to is these really fruitless conversations where two different people can be quoting from the exact same text, two passages that contradict one another. And then everyone is both right and wrong at the same time.
1: Yeah, I think that the religious comparison is pretty apt. I don't know what more to say on this topic. I think that I find his ideas very vexing, to say the least. And Somewhat really dangerous, and i I don't say that to be over dramatic, but I think that a lot of people i suspect I have no way of proving this, but I suspect that a lot of people bought the book because it was a bestseller and it was all the rage last year. I suspect that a lot of people, however, bought the book have not and have not read the book um like the book is just sitting on people's bookshelves as sort of like a topic of conversation but i wish that people would read read it and seriously like force themselves to grapple with the ideas seriously and critically as opposed to again this i think this is the process by which we turn people into a fetish because of how they look or what they claim to represent i think that that some of that is going on right now and i think that some of that is be behind the almost feverish and religious like devotion to Ibram Kendi's book. Like I want people to unpack and interrogate my ideas and to challenge them and to in doing so make me better. But I don't, I don't sense that Ibram Kendi desires that.
0: You break down the major problems with most anti-racism approaches as follows in some of the documentation from the theory of enchantment. You say that they cause more division after implementation, they lead to more racial stereotyping, not less, which is something we've touched on here, and that they treat relationships as zero-sum power plays, right? And that's a pretty succinct three-point summation of some of the stuff we've been talking about here and a lot of the problems that we've seen articulated with this very same topic in articles, essays, on Twitter, elsewhere. So I'd love to ground this list in the personal. How did you come to identify these problems explicitly? Was it through personal experience with existing anti-racism training? Was it stories that you'd heard from friends and family? Or was it something else? How did you personally, as Chloe, come to this realization?
1: Well, you know, I was sort of tuned into the zeitgeist and seeing what was happening with certain books like Ibrahim Kindi's book and also Robin DiAngelo's book, uh, White Fragility, sort of take off. And you know i engaged with those texts i read them i found them incredibly oppressive quite frankly in that they they contained no room for the complexity of myself which could not be reduced to some of the ways that they i felt that they were reducing people so that was one thing another thing was i started asking people to tell me about what had happened at their workplace their experience with bringing some of these anti-racism trainings to their cultures and how it had affected them, how it had affected relationships between workers of different colors. And I started receiving all of this data, all these stories that anecdotally showed me what was going on, especially with the racial stereotyping, assuming that because a person is white, that she has had a set of lived experiences and assuming because a person is black, she has had a different set of lived experiences and that both are Merely the sum of those lived experiences. Both of those things are, are part of what racial stereotyping entails. Um, and I think it's important to talk about how it's both. It's not just because we usually just think of racial stereotyping in the first instance that I said, but not in the in the latter. And this is something that Ralph Ellison talks about in a book called Shadow and Act, which I also recommend to your readers if they'd like to read a friend of Albert Murray's, who who was also an incredible critic and and, and really good at distilling the problems with some of what we're experiencing today with anti-racism training. Um, so I'd say it was both. It was not being able to see myself expressed in or reflected back in me in the books that claim to capture my experience as an African-American. And it was also folks who were sending me information on what they were experiencing in the workplace.
0: So I guess for anyone who's listening to this who might be intrigued or interested in learning more about bringing Theory of Enchantment into their workplace, you know, anyone who's read (laughs) D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, knows how she would resolve a workplace conflict between, let's say, a white person and a black person. But let's say there's tension in the workplace and there's a misunderstanding or someone made a a joke in poor taste, or maybe someone assumed something because they hadn't been exposed to a certain culture or a certain type of person. I mean, the kind of friction that can happen in a diverse society, some of it malevolent, some of it just pure ignorance, and some of it maybe meant in a benevolent way and just came off wrong. So How would Theory of Enchantment go about resolving or helping workers resolve a potential workplace conflict in a way that is different, more holistic, and healthier than the traditional methods?
1: So one of the things we teach is, let me just tell you sort of like my cosmological view, if that's the right description, of how racism occurs. We believe that racism occurs when a human being or group of people experience some kind of psychological insecurity, whether that's a lack of feeling of belonging, feeling of significance, fear, real or perceived, and developed a kind of a tinge of self-contempt as a result of that, and then overcompensates for that measure of self-contempt. And that overcompensation can manifest itself in ways that are basically supremacist ideological ways of thinking. I always like to point out that supremacy is a, the term is a bit of a misnomer because it's informed by an inferiority complex. So what we do is we go in and we basically help people, again, first and foremost, develop that self-love primarily so that they don't feel the need to overcompensate for insecurity in the first place. Now, I'm saying this to you because we teach certain tactics like depersonalization in service of that self-refinement. We teach people to understand, and this is something that Daryl Davis, who famously, Daryl Davis is an African-American musician, but his his claim to fame is that he, over decades, convinced more than 200 Klansmen to give up their robes, right? And so I interviewed him and I asked him, when you were talking to these guys and they would say crazy things about you, you didn't get mad, you didn't get angry, like, how could you not have gotten angry? And he said to me, well, I didn't get angry because... What they were saying to me had nothing to do with me, it had absolutely nothing to do with me. I know who I am. I know what I'm about. I have a sense of self-worth that's rooted. Why would I get mad at something that they're saying to me that clearly has nothing to do with me? And so that really was like an aha moment. And so I say that to say we teach depersonalization as one of the tactics, or not even tactics, but one of the signs of emotional maturity. And what that means is, if someone says something to you that's out of pocket or out of bounds, first and foremost, we want to make sure that you are not personalizing it, that you are not internalizing it, and that you are not letting that become a part of like how you see yourself as. And that way, when you go to tell this person that, you know, what you said really offended me or what you said really made me uncomfortable, it's not coming from a place of bitterness or resentment. It's coming from a place of, again, that self-love, that self-confidence, which can also be extended to your coworker or to your you know neighbor or to your fellow man. It was a kind of a roundabout answer, but I, I needed it rooted in that understanding of how we approach this, because what you say is important, but where you're coming from when you say it is also important. And the lens through which you view the world and yourself and your place in it is super, super important because these things create self-fulfilling prophecies. And once you're able to recognize, this goes back to Kendrick Lamar, once you're able to recognize your own capacity for good and evil, and in a more practical sense, your own capacity for saying things that are insensitive or offensive, once you're able to recognize that, then when someone engages with you in a way that is the same, you can correct them, but you can still see them as human. You don't see them as like you know less than you, simply because they made this mistake. And again, all of this is important when you are calling for accountability because as Maya Angelou said that a person cannot develop character unless they are valued. And so when you're talking to your coworker in a situation where this arises, you have to make sure that you are valued and that you're valuing the coworker as well.
0: Yeah, that is very relatable to me because I learned a lot about this topic when I was in cognitive behavioral therapy for several years. That idea that when a person is, is saying something to you that very often it has nothing to do with you, but rather their own upbringing, their own background, their own experiences, their own ignorance. You happen to be the receptacle (laughs) that that their words are going into at that moment. But yeah, the key to depersonalizing it is so fundamental. But I guess if I were to play devil's advocate, right? And I need to be clear that I 100% agree with your method. But if I was to play devil's advocate as someone maybe who wasn't as in agreement with you as I am, they would say, You know, Chloe, that's a nice sounding platitude, they might say, but let's say they're a a black woman or a black man or an Asian woman or a Hispanic person, right? It's not just that one comment, right, that they get at work. That one comment could be symbolic of all the many different comments they've gotten over the course of the three, four, five decades they've lived on this earth, right? So I guess I want to try and remain, and I know you are too, but I guess I want to try and remain sympathetic to people who might be a little more wary of that, even if it is ultimately the correct way forward, right? But they might be more wary of that because they would say, it's not that easy for me to depersonalize it when it has influenced every facet of my life when I'm maybe the only black woman in the room, right? Or the only black man in the organization, and I'm constantly being told jokes or can I touch your hair or just little things. And yes, maybe every individual instance is someone's own ignorance and it's not technically about you. But you've been receiving it for years and years and years. So I guess just to give the other side their due, what do you say? What do we say, I suppose, to people who have that, I think, very real potential objection to that idea?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say, first of all, this work is hard. And that's not to be dismissive of the question. But the work is very difficult. The work is about shaping the character of human beings, really and the moral refinement of human beings. That's number one. Number two, what, what arose for me while you were describing this scenario is the fact that if a person is has been experiencing something for decades, the person also has to point out to people when things are, are done to them that are unacceptable, that it's unacceptable, right? I mean, I, I do not believe in what I think has taken hold of some of our ways of thinking these days, which is a kind of a paternalism that makes everyone except for people who are receiving or on the receiving end of prejudice responsible. I think we're all responsible citizens. We we have to be responsible citizens to sustain our democracy. And if someone has been perpetually bothering you for Ten years, and you haven't said anything to this person, you haven 't communicated anything to this person, then you also have a responsibility to speak up for yourself. you also have a responsibility to push back so that's number two, and number three, I would like to remind people that this was and, and you know this is this is why I think that even though we celebrate MLK day, we take it very very much for granted what was done through the Kingian wing of the civil rights movement. everything that I just described was the heart and soul. Of Dr. King's philosophy. This is why Dr. King practiced nonviolence. So you want to talk about decades and decades of being called something or joked at at work and I don't want to minimize that but this what I'm saying comes from a tradition that was created by individuals in a community who experienced lynchings, who experienced slavery, who experienced the daily persecutions that they did living in a society where jim crow was the law of the land and those same people created an entire movement based upon nonviolence and the reason for that was because of this belief in agapic love was because of this belief that even the oppressor is caught and imprisoned within a prison of their own making and even the oppressor was made in the image of the divine and so Dr. King has a great sermon where he said, where he talks about the problem with the end justifying the means, because he says the means contains the seed that brings forth the end. And so the end will reflect whatever means you used. So I I think bearing all of that in mind and keeping in mind that, again, as a reminder, when people went out to desegregate diners, they practiced nonviolence before going. Meaning, they literally did these exercises where they had their friends curse at them, spit at them, pull their hair, call them derogatory names, also that they could practice nonviolence, also that they could practice not hitting their oppressor back. Because again, they believed in a moral transcendent ethic that they rooted their entire movement in. And that movement created an incredible as you know an incredible amount of legislation that led to the undoing of un- injustice within our society so what i'm saying as a practice is hard but i actually don't think it's any more harder certainly not any more harder compared to what our ancestors went through and so i think there has to be some sort of you know i recognize the difficulty i recognize the the challenge of it but i also recognize that i think we are capable of that challenge and rising to the occasion just as we've done in the past.
0: Even just hearing you talk about it now. I mean this is and this is a history that I'm already familiar with, but I mean every time I just hear it, even just hearing you describe about how they would prepare themselves by yelling and screaming at one another and even hitting one another in order just to prepare themselves and to get themselves in that state of mind to withstand that abuse when it was real and not just acted out. The sheer amount of resolve, the sheer amount of conviction one has to have in the face of overwhelming opposition is just something that I think that as a society, I hope we continue to remind ourselves because it's such a monumental feat. And when we look back in time, whether it's a figure like Gandhi or a figure like MLK and his followers, you know, it seems like, oh yeah, of course, that, that's what had to be done or that's what, have, of course they did that. But I mean, just the idea, I'm just picturing people in their living rooms <laughs> getting ready to go out, knowing that they're gonna be spit at just for sitting at a diner and trying to order a milkshake. Just that idea of people in a living room together preparing themselves for that onslaught by acting it out on one another is really something that should crystallize in people's minds to understand the true monumental achievement that was made in that decade.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And not, you know, of course, not only spit upon, but jumped, beaten with batons, fire hoses, fire hose, in danger, in in some cases lynched, right? So they went in understanding that that was a possibility and made the decision to act nonviolently. Yeah.
0: And it does bring to mind that second James Baldwin quote that I, I left behind, but I just want to bring it back in here because it does tie in very closely with what you said earlier about Martin Luther King, where he says, quote, White people have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist for it will no longer be needed, end quote. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the idea of having a superiority complex comes from a deep place of feeling inferior in some way.
1: Mm -hmm. So that's actually probably my favorite Baldwin quote. Because it so encapsulates where the theory of enchantment is coming from, and it also is my favorite because I feel like no one knows that quote. (laughs) Like no one knows this quote. Whenever people quote James Baldwin, they never quote this. I mean, I tried to, and you just did, but like typically, I never hear this quote. And it's such a fantastic insight into the human condition. And like it totally, he totally understood how things occur and why things break down in human affairs, yeah, this is why we root our approach to combating racism in self-love, because the person who is whole does not gravitate toward the extremes.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. I mean, if I look back at the, the times in my own life when I've been the most acerbic or the most judgmental, the most short-sighted, the most short-tempered, the worst version of myself, if I really, and again, thank you therapy, when I've done the reflection on why I've been in those states, why I've said the things that hurt people I deeply care about, why have I said them? I can always trace it back to something that was inside of me that I hated. For whatever reason right like i didn't feel like i was worthy of love i didn't feel like i was worth enough i didn't feel like i was worth that job i didn't feel like i was worthy of parents as good as the ones that i had right or the girlfriend who was better than i thought i deserved right and that kind of inner pain or inner feeling of inferiority made me bitter and angry in ways that i couldn't really comprehend until i had done the deep introspection to figuring out why i felt the way that i did And I feel like so much of what we experience in society on a societal level, that anger, that pain, whether it's caused by exterior forces or interior ones, all comes down to a feeling of not feeling like you're worthy enough of love, of respect of respect from yourself. And that's why that Baldwin quote for me has stood out for as long as it has, because I relate to it, not in its entirety, but I relate to that idea on a very fundamental level. And it's one of the reasons why I have such respect for what you're trying to do with theory of enchantment.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah. And I, you know, we teach, as I said, we teach a lot of Baldwin in the theory of enchantment, including the fire next time. That's where that quote comes from, but also everybody's protest novel, which was one of his first essays written in 1948 that echoes that same sentiment. I think it's funny because I feel like that last quote you just read completely encapsulates for me, it's a complete repudiation of Robin DiAngelo's model of combating racism, which is white fragility, which actually I think increases the feeling of self-contempt within whites, which is precisely what you don't want to do if you're trying to combat racism. But no, it's a beautiful quote. So many of our problems would be solved if we learn how to love ourselves. And so it's a continuing struggle to learn how to do that.
0: Before we get to the final question, which I ask every guest, you've thrown out some great recommendations of people to check out of books to read. Are there any other recommendations that are either rooted in how the theory of enchantment operates or even just ones that you've come across over the last years, we've all been locked down that you've found really inspirational and interesting to yourself that you'd like to recommend to the listeners.
1: I just wrote a great book called a prayer for Owen Meany. It's a novel. It's the last novel I read last year. I would recommend that just because it's a, it's a great book. And Seneca wrote a short book called On the Shortness of Life, which I also highly recommend for people looking to put things into perspective.
0: Wonderful recommendation. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. To wrap out our chat, I'd like to pose a question to you that I pose to everyone, and it feels particularly topical in relation to you and your work. We're limited as individuals, in all sorts of ways, we're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well intentioned, caring person can't be thinking of every other person, every group of people, all the time. It's just impossible. There's too much going on. The world is too busy. There's too much to do. So, Chloe, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to?
1: Oh, what a great question. <laughs> I would like to offer empathy to Ibram Kendi. I think that Ibram Kendi experienced a great deal of hardship and persecution and identity challenges vis-a-vis identity growing up, especially if you read like some of the things he experienced that he talks about in his book. And I understand what it's like to experience, I think, a loss of, of groundedness with oneself and, how, and what it's like to experience a crisis of meaning and what it's like to experience cognitive dissonance. And it's really hard. It's really all-encompassing when it happens. And I recognize that this is something that confronts us all as human beings. And so despite you know what has come out of that, for Ibram Kendi... Despite the fact that I disagree with many of its, I guess, notes, many notes on, of the song that he's produced, I empathize with the tragedy that has been a part of his life.
0: These last 10 months, I think, have been difficult for all of us in our own ways. It's been very hard to be isolated from our fellow human beings for as long as we have. I think it's kind of anti-human to have to do so. And online, on social media, things can feel so toxic. I think your, your detox you're doing right now is for the better, things can feel so divisive things can feel like we're further apart than ever before which is one of the reasons why i'm so grateful to be able to have conversations like this which give me hope in the future of humanity and our ability to come together in our commonality as fellow human beings so chloe thank you so much for your time and for the work that you're doing
1: thank you again for inviting me on i really enjoyed the conversation